The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie hey. Hour. We have Gary Gentry with us. The Paul Leslie Hour is full of all the best stories from the great storytellers. Pour yourself a hot, filled to the brim cup of coffee. If you've ever gotten enjoyment or education, go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. And this man, Gary Gentry, he leaves me full of admiration. There are so many country music classics that he wrote, and some of the best singers have recorded his work. I'm talking about singers like Ray Charles and Janie Fricky, Johnny Cash, Johnny Paycheck, David Allen Coe, George Jones, John Anderson, Gary Gentry, thank you very much for talking to us. Well, thank you, and I appreciate all the kudos. And hello to all my friends down there in Georgia. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell them what I told you. <laughs> Old friend of mine, Horace Haney, I called him. He said, uh, boy, it's cold. And I said, well, how cold is it, Horace? He said, well, today I've seen two lawyers stick their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> I said, well, that's pretty cold. <laughs> it's getting colder. We're supposed to have a real blast up here in Nashville this week. Real cold blast. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes, we supposed to get out in twenties, fifteen one night. And uh, I just left uh, northern Kentucky yesterday and saw some flurries, so it's coming. Winter's here. Yep. Well, where are you at the moment? Are you in Nashville or on the outskirts of Nashville? I am sitting in front of my computer in my office in uh, Madison, Tennessee. Madison is about five, oh, about six miles north of downtown Nashville. It's just an area of Nashville. Boy, this this community has all the songwriters and uh, Elvis Presley's manager, Patsy Cline, Hank Snow, everybody lived in Madison. Back in the day, of course, it's all changed now. But when I came here, uh, boy, what a history here. Eddie Arnold owned half the town. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's hard to leave because it's so nostalgic. I can feel the ghosts around here, you know? And oh, yeah. So I'm sitting in Madison, Tennessee. And where were you born? Athens, Tennessee, a little town between Chattanooga and Knoxville. 60 miles each way. McMinn County over in East Tennessee. Love that community. May go back before I take the big dirt nap. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a great farm community. A lot of great people over there. A lot of like them Georgians. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get interested in music? Well, I fell in love with music with Hank Williams. He had a song called, uh, I was a kid, paper paper route carrier. And he uh he had a song called I Can't Help It If I'm Still in Love With You. And I was on my little bicycle radio, you know, you had one you had to clip on the handlebars to get reception. And I heard that song and it just stopped me. I'd like rock and roll and Elvis and everybody up until then, but that song made me feel his pain. And I went and told Mom and I didn't know who Hank Williams was. I said, Mom, I just love that song. I said do you think I could go to his concert sometime? She said, 
Well, I hate to tell you, son, but I'm sorry, but he died a few years ago. I was 12, so that would have been around oh, 62 or 3. And I didn't know he had died. And then I really got interested in uh, in Hank. I loved his music, his poetry. And I'd try to write my own. And, of course, the early songs are amateurish and kind of scattered and all that sort of thing. But it was Hank that, that drew me in. And when I was 15... We went over to uh, visit the opera. We knew a DJ in town, and he got us backstage to the old rhyming. Well, we uh, went in, and I asked several of them, I said, where's Hank Williams live? And Ernest Tubb was just performing that night. Well, you go down here on Franklin Road, and you take a left when you get past so-and-so's house. And we went down, and I drove, I was driving Mom's old car, and she and Grandma were with me. I didn't even have a license then. I had a permit. But I wanted to see Hank's house. So I pulled up in the driveway. And Mama said, oh, you can't do that, boy. You uh, going to get us arrested. Well, I went up and knocked on the door. That's how bad I wanted into Hank's life. <laughs> and I knocked on the door. And Miss Raglan, his housekeeper, came to the door. And she said, well, Come on in. I said, I'm just the biggest fan of Hank's. I said, he, he just means more to me now. So I just love that, that poet. And I'd like to see his house if you don't mind me walking around the outside. She said, no, come on inside. And tell your mom and grandma to get out of the car. It's hot out there. So they did. Well, I went through the house. And Miss Raglan showed us the kitchen, took me back, and showed me both seats his bedroom, where he had a 50 by 50 picture of his daddy at the end of the uh, hall and I was walking through the house and touching Hank's boots and all those things. You know, he had those black eyes and he, from that picture, he looked at me like you ain't heard the last of me, boy. I know you're a fan of mine. Hmm. And I went through the house and there was a lady came out of a bathroom in the house. She had on a white robe and had a pink towel around her hair. You know how women do. She said, well, can I help you young man? And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I just idolized Hank Williams, and I, I just wanted to see his house. Well, come on. She took me in the back and showed me Hank Jr.'s little barber shop. Took me out and showed me the Cadillac Hank died in. Took me through that whole house. It was Audrey Williams. And I said, well, thank you, ma'am, for letting me see that Hank's things. Mom and Grandma still couldn't believe we were in that house looking at all of Hank's possessions collection of guns and all that. <laughs> and she said, uh, well, you're welcome, son. I said, I just love Mr. Williams. She said, well, you don't have to call him Mr. Son. The whole world called him Hank. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And I, then I was in a movie about Hank called the Hank Williams Tribute. And it was filmed here and shot here in Nashville. And I won the part. Out of 75 people, I won the part. I guess they saw how bad I wanted it. I played Sammy put Hank Williams' guitar player back in the old Griffin Cowboy days. And uh, it's on sale down at Hank Museum, and the Cadillac's still down there. It's a great place to visit in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. But uh, from then on, I felt empowered that I could write. Well, I made a, a few more lousy little songs, you know. But then one day I was in the Navy, sitting in Italy, and I wrote this entered this contest, clipped a little clipping out. It said, send a cassette and the lyrics and enter the American Song Festival. 
Well, I didn't think anything about it. I went ahead and entered the little contest. They sent me a check and a plaque, and I placed high in the, uh, it was a stupid little song, but uh, it was a funny song. And they sent me a check and a plaque, and I said, woo, boys, I'm leaving the Navy. I'm on my way to Nashville. And I figured they'd be lined up at the airport waiting me to greet me when I got there. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it took me three years to get my first song cut. But that's okay. It didn't matter. I had, I came here and slept in the car and um, stayed down on Broadway. Back when Broadway was a lot of dives down there, but nothing else. And I'd park my car at the end of the street down there and sleep in it. Boy, you couldn't do that today. This place is packed. But... That was in 1978, and I'd go to uh, Ernest Hub Record Shop, and I'd look uh, on the backs of the albums, you know, who produced, who published, who, I said, these are the guys I need to get in with. So, sure enough, I did. I got a nighttime job at the liquor store, and everybody that came in that looked like they were in the music business, I'd say, hey, you're in the music business. <laughs> and one night... Uh, so Billy Sherrill, Carmel Taylor, everybody, including many stars, Dobie Gray, came to that liquor store down on Franklin Road, not far from where I visited Hank's house. And I met the people that helped me in the music business through that liquor store. And I remember one night there was a well-dressed gentleman come in. I said, you're in the music business. <laughs> he said, uh, well, yes, I am. I'm Buddy Killen. <laughs> Buddy Killen on Tree International Music and uh, ended up selling it to Sony Music for $50 million. But he, he walked in and he said, I said, well, I'm a songwriter. I'm looking for a home, a place where I can hang my song. And he said, uh, well, I've got a couple of writers with me. That's why I'm in here buying this champagne. We're celebrating. <laughs> uh, would you like to meet them? I said, yeah. And so I went out to the car with him and there was Ben Peters wow. and Curly Putman. And they were as nice as they could be. Curly Putman, of course, co-wrote He Stopped Loving Her Today. Oh, yeah. And he wrote uh, The Green, Green Grass of Home. And I met those guys, and I felt like, you know what? It's just getting closer and closer to the time. I'm going to be a writer. And I wrote it every night, every day. Sure enough, I got a call one day from uh, Carmel Taylor. I had given him a tape. I'd give cassettes out like candy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Go home, tape them, make up copies, and pass them out. And Carmel said, did you write drinking and driving? <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. He said, uh, well, you know what? I, you need to let me publish that. I said, well, where's your publishing company? He said, in my back pocket. Really? He didn't have an office. <laughs> he said, I'm starting one with Narl Wilson. Narl wrote, co-wrote The Most Beautiful Girl for Charlie Rick. He said, uh, I want to publish it. I got a call about a week later from Billy Sherrill, Mr. Nashville. He said, won't you hear something, boy? It was Johnny Paycheck singing, drinking, and driving. And I knew then I was I was on my way to write. Because in this town, you weren't anybody till you got a cut, and then they'd listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was that, we'll tolerate you now. <laughs> So after that, Danny Doris and I wrote the Lady in the Blue Mercedes, and then it was it was on and on. And of course, uh, 
the ride just blew, blew them away. And it was about my hero, Hank. And so that's, that's how I got started. It was a slow building confidence thing. And I'd write little songs, and of course your friends always support you. You know, you ought to go to Nashville. I heard that, I guess, a million times before I ever came here. <laughs> but I think people saw the passion that I had for the music and the uh, the love I had, and they thought, and they look at me like, you know, it's just a matter of time. That boy's going to ride him. And thank God I did. So how did you get in radio? <laughs> well, at the time I was writing... And I, I thought that I was a better interviewer than a writer. And so I thought, instead of instead of writing out what someone said, I'm just going to let them say it. <laughs> and that's, it, was, it was actually the first station I was on was Jimmy Buffett's station. I'll be darned. <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> you never know. Boy, he left his mark all over the world, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He made a few bucks, too. <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah he did it's funny Billy Sherrill was produced George Jones Johnny Paycheck David Allen Coe Tammy Wynette he was a big producer and uh, one day the secretary was out and I was in the office and he said how about answer the phone for me and don't let nobody back here in the studio I'm mixing I said okay well who walks through the door but Don Gant Oh, yeah. Don Gant was Jimmy Buffett's producer. And I introduced myself, and we talked a minute, and he said, well, I need to see Billy about something. I said, well, he's back there mixing, and he told me, don't let anybody in. He said, well, I don't know how that is, but it'll just take a second of his time. So Billy was back there. He was a very private guy. And I, uh, I walked back there, and I said, Billy Don Gant's here, because I was dreaming of a Jimmy Buffett record a cut <laughs> and I, I thought well maybe if I help Don here and get by I, I, and of course Billy published all my stuff so he would have made money on it too writing publishing is a split deal you know and so I walked back there and said Don Gantry he said what is it about leave me alone and stay out of here that you don't understand <laughs> Woo. well it rolls downhill so I went back out in there with Don Gantry I said Don I told you, he don't want to see you. He don't want to see nobody. Well, Don kind of huffed and went off down the road, and I thought, well, there goes a $100,000 Jimmy Buffett cut right <laughs> out the door. <laughs> oh, man. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, there was some great people here. He died young, you know. Yeah. Coral poisoning. Got it in Florida. About 43, I think. Hmm. But uh, Jimmy Buffett's had a great career, and some friends of mine worked for uh Buzz Kaysen, I think he's uh, he's had a lot to do with Jimmy's career in the publishing, you know. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, Buzz wrote, uh, he and Mike Gaden wrote uh, Everlasting Love, the big pop hit back in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Everlasting Love. Uh, yeah, they wrote, they wrote a lot of them together. Just, I've, I've been here for 40 years. And I just met some of the greatest people. Merle hired everybody, became friends with George. He used to come to the liquor store where I worked about two or three times a week. George Jones? And uh, Yeah. Yeah. I worked at the liquor store where he rode the John Deere lawnmower <laughs> to get a bottle when Tammy hit all the keys to the cars. 
<laughs> now that is a claim to fame if I have ever heard one. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, in the newspaper a few weeks ago, there was an ad talking about down there on the liquor store, they put a mural of George riding a lawnmower. John Deere lawnmower. <laughs> and they said, uh, Gary Gentry used to bottle, uh, used to bag bottles for George until he wrote the Corvette song. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, that is great. That tourist will love that. Go by there and see George waving at about that lawnmower. That made headlines everywhere about she hit all the keys. A drunk will get a drink if it, where I don't care if he's on a desert or a deserted island. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've, I've been clean sober since uh, 1984, but boy, <laughs> <laughs> I knew what had it happened. I could just see it all unfold. Tammy hit all the keys to the car so he wouldn't go get a drink. But well, one key she did forget, and that was the ride lawnmower. <laughs> he lived about a mile from the liquor store. And so uh, they had that big parking on looking at home down there on Franklin Road. And he rode up there and got, got <laughs> some bottles. So Johnny Paycheck, drinking and driving, that was your very first cut? That was it. And then uh, then next was, yeah, the first cut that that really made money, you know, and, and got me in the world of songwriting. Before then, I'd written a what a law man for Buford Pusser, his book, the story came out and it was hot. They were making wall walking tall movies every week, you know? And I wrote that. And then Merle Kilgore was my, one of my early mentors. And of course he wrote Wolverton mountain and ring of fire and, uh, co-wrote that with Gene and, and some great songs. And he got me a couple of little cuts, but they didn't, they weren't chart records. They were things like uh, Bob Harrington was a preacher down in Louisiana, down in New Orleans. He used to go into bars and preach to people. And he ended up with a TV show and a three million following. And and uh, I wrote a, a song called The Chaplain of Bourbon Street for him and several other songs. But then Johnny Paycheck got me, got me known. He recorded five of my songs during his... Uh, career, but they only put the one out, drinking and driving. I was risque, doing a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, I'm ashamed to say, but I did a lot of wild songs, and Johnny was the first one to jump on him and cut him, but the record company would stop him. You know, they wouldn't let him out. They wouldn't put him out. We wrote one called You're Black, I'm White, and We're Blue about an interracial relationship and, and the problems that happened, and he loved it. And Johnny would, I'd walk in the room and old Johnny would grin like, what has he got now? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I came up with, we wrote one that got, I co-wrote a song with the author, Stephen King, called The Poster. And Johnny recorded it after he left Billy and went with uh, Stan Cornelius as his producer. Uh, but they wouldn't, they, there was a lot of fear in the eighties about political correctness, that's when it really crept into country music, and you saw country music change. And uh, it got politically correct, and and the record companies were afraid they'd boycott stations or have the stations boycotted or, or whatever, and stations became afraid of the uh, politically correct people. So country music did a big change in the mid-'80s. The old... Old days changed. Right, right. Max Barnes, you know, was a good friend of mine. 
And Mac wrote the chisel in stone. And he wrote, uh, who's going to fill their shoes? Oh, yeah. And uh, I went to see Mac one day. I Billy had retired. Billy Sherrill. I wrote for him and Al Gallico for, oh, almost a decade. And I said, what about it? He said, well, Gary, we can't write songs. He said, I made a good living writing about dead people. And he said, it's changed, son. They have a depression police out here now. You can't write your drinking songs anymore. And I can't write about dead people. He said, somebody gave the politically correct people a voice. And they have power because they can threaten to boycott the sponsors of radio stations. And he said, it's changing to like family songs and that sort of thing. Positive messages. The DUI laws got real tough in this country in the, in the 80s. And he said, uh, we can't write what we used to. And Max was, he was way on up in years then, and I was probably 40, probably 40 years old. I'm 69 now. But uh, he was very disappointed in the change. So was Billy and everybody. It just, uh, I was uh, on, on Electric Curb Records, and Jimmy Bowen was a big producer there. And I was sitting there when Jimmy was mixing Hank Jr.'s Country Boy Can Survive. And uh, we were sitting there grooving to the song, great song. And Martha Sharp came in. She worked for Electric. And she walked in and said, Jimmy, I just don't know about that gun. The anti-gun people are going to kick. And I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> Jimmy said, uh, Jimmy said, Martha. The man killed Hank's friend for 40 bucks. Don't that justify him wanting to take a 45 and spit some beech nut in that man's eye and shoot him with his old 45? No, I'm not going to take it out of there. Well, Martha was doing her job. She was working for, to protect the record company. But, I mean, that song, when it almost did not get through, I thought, boy, I better find a real job. Because it just took the... It, squeezed and squeegeed the country out of country music, you know? Yeah. And it changed for a more popish, positive, and for a youthful audience. To me, country music was about real life and real problems. Uh, when I write about jail, I know about jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and it all changed. And I guess it's for the better, but uh, there's thousands and thousands of people out here who miss country music, real country, you know? They call it now, what, bro music and, and tractor rap? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I listed at the beginning of the interview all of these great singers who have recorded your work. Oh, I've been blessed. But I'm curious, your own voice, who would you say was the biggest influence on your singing? Uh, probably George, uh, George and paycheck. It would be between the two because I knew them both and, uh, they could make you feel a song. And all I ever wanted to do was tell a good story. Never claimed to be a singer. I never, uh, really cared. I wanted to get my songs recorded. Well, the easiest way to do that is record your own. So I did a, I got on Electra records and, did a lot of things with Tom T. Hall. And so I would I would say 
paycheck and Jones because that's who I was. I was them. I was one of them. The real country people who who wanted to make you feel. When George does, he stop loving her today. He can he put chills all over my my arms. You know, it just it was a real deal. When Paycheck did A11, some of the old songs, some of the early songs, he made me feel. Hank always made me feel, but of course he was gone by the time I got to town. I, I would say those two. George, you remember Paycheck's song, uh, In Memory of a Memory? Oh, yeah. Well, he could make you feel it, couldn't he? <laughs> That's why I'm here tonight. He was definitely underrated. Oh, he was underrated. And, and Johnny, uh, Johnny could, when he did take this job and shove it, boy, that's a, that was, that was it. And he became the working man hero. Who would know that timing is a lot in this business. And who would know that the coal miners were getting ready to go on strike. And, uh, David wrote it, David Allen wrote it and really recorded it on, uh, on Johnny. And when that thing hit the airways, it just exploded. The coal miner people and, and everybody in West Virginia adapted that song and called him their working man's hero, and his bookings went from like five, 500 and 1,000 a night to 10,000 and more a night. So it, he just exploded. That was back in the 80s, you know, and it was some money then. Would it be possible for you to pick who did the best interpretation of a Gary Gentry song or a song you co-wrote? Well, David, of course, I sold all of them. The ride's still recorded by everybody, and I get I get a new cut a day on there. I would say uh, David sold the ride, and uh, I would say David, and he's big down in Georgia. He works all over Georgia. He's worked Athens, everywhere down there. But like me, he's getting older. But in his day, he uh, he could sell a song that I was thumbing from Montgomery. You know, he just made you feel it. Oh, yeah. To me, that was always more important than anything. And Billy Sherrill one day, I remember Lacey Dalton came in to record. And he said, Lacey, you must be a little nervous. She said, no, I don't know why. He said, well, style is what I'm looking for. It was your style that got you this record deal. He said, singers, you go to church on Sunday, there's 300 singers in the congregation. I don't want a singer. I want a stylist. And style is what what turned me on. I learned through Billy to look for style, something unique. Nobody had to tell you it was George Jones singing when you put a record on back in your radio days. Nobody had to tell you. You didn't have to tell your audience it was George Jones. They knew. And that's what he looked for, that style. And, of course, David's got style. And uh, Paycheck's definitely got a style of his own. I've never heard any anything like him. But those were uh, things. And, and Billy always told me, he said, son, it is the unique idea that makes the hit. Number two, it is the unique idea that makes a hit song. <laughs> and number three, the unique idea hit makes a hit. So I looked for that, and who could sell it? I remember Johnny Cash, of course, everybody knows who Johnny Cash was. And you didn't have to tell anybody. But 
he came in and he hadn't had a uh, hadn't had a top ten record or, or been in the charts past the 80s for a decade. It was during the latter days, you know. Billy said, why don't you write something for cash? I'm getting ready to produce him. This was 30, 32 years ago. And I said, okay. Well, I went home and smoked something and smoked something else. I came up with the chicken in black. Now, it only went to top 40, but that's the first top 40 song he'd had in a decade. And he didn't like the song, didn't want to do the song. And he said, Billy, I'd better do something, you know, patriotic or, or something. That's not me, that, that brain transplant. That's what I called it in the beginning. And Billy said, well, John, we've been trying that for 10 years and it ain't working. Your audience has changed. Let's do this song. Well, Jack Clement even said, you know, Gary, that song would have gone number one if Cash hadn't killed a promotion on it. it he didn't like the song. But Billy and the record company sure did, and they paid for a video. There's a video out on that, Chicken and Black. So the day he went in there, I went in to watch Cash record my song. I took another song with me called The Pearly Gates. All right, John went in there and recorded it. He said, uh, he came out and he said, well, you're batting a thousand today, boy. I'm going to cut both your songs. <laughs> he did The Pearly Gates. And he did uh, Chicken in Black. Okay, Chicken in Black went out there. It charted top 40, and he did it 19 times on the reruns of HBO Bob Hope Special one time, and the audience loved it, but Johnny didn't. But he did love the Pearly Gates. So he cut both those songs. Well, next thing you know, Johnny was in Billboard magazine giving music rooms a finger, and he went out to California. Rick Rubin, I believe was his last producer. But that song disappeared. And for years, I'd, I'd uh, email, you know, John Carter, have you ever found the Pearly Gates? No. I said, your dad did it the same day he did Chicken and Black. Wonder ever happened to it. Well, 30 years later, John Carter Cash found a stash of masters that John had done, and it had the Pearly Gates in it. And they put it out in his, his last album. There were several songs in there that, that he recorded years and years ago. And that thing, it's boy, it still brings in the bucks in Europe, England, Australia, all over the world. You know, Cash was international. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he had a style. He wanted to do pop or he wanted to do a different kind of song. And it, it, I think his last album did really well. But uh, he was a stylist. And, and that's what Billy always looked for, was a stylist. And and uh, Tammy had a style. You knew who it was when Tammy sang. And, of course, he and her wrote Stand By Your Man, you know, and all those big monsters. Songwriting is a lot timing. It's a lot of persistence. It's a lot of rewriting. A lot of editing, and one word or anything can change the context of a song. And now I don't. I'm wanting to uh, leave Nashville and go to East Tennessee. I need to write a book. I went back and took a course, and I've had threat my book coach and everybody threatened to whip me <laughs> if I don't write a book. <laughs> so I, I want to do that, and I have notes and stuff all over the house. It just takes a lot of privacy, dedication, and focus to write a full book and make it entertaining. You got a guy from down there from Atlanta writing a lot of hot books right now. You know Ace Adkins? 
That name rings a bell. I don't know him. He's the hottest crime fiction writer going right now. He, uh, even the Robert Parker family, when Robert died, they had him, uh, do some of his unfinished books and he went from Boston, Massachusetts down to Atlanta. And a lot of it takes place down there. He's a Mississippi writer and he's hot. Spent a few week, uh, days, uh, a few weeks ago with Doug Kershaw. You remember Doug? Oh yeah. Well, Doug's got a new book out called, uh, the raging Cajun. He's such a sweet man. He's a lovable man. He loves everybody. And uh, it's it's going to be a hot Christmas item, I think. Sorry, selling like hotcakes. But it's his autobiography, and what a biography. My goodness. You wouldn't believe the poverty and what he came through to become the Cajun rock star that he became. Huh. And he's respected by Keith Richards and Stephen Tyler and Mick Jagger, everybody. He just he knows them all, and he's just a lovable guy. It'd be great to get him on you, your show one day to interview Oh no, kidding! <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be great. I took him to a, we took him and his son, our dear friend, and so I took Doug to uh, went down to meet him at a book signing in the library here in Nashville. Then he went up the legislative plaza, and people were lined up for a quarter of a mile to have their book autographed by Doug Kershaw, and he just uh, he said, "Oh, it just touches my heart." That's well, they love you, Doug. That'd be a great Christmas gift going coming. Are you writing any? No, not really. I've thought about writing a, a book about all these interviews I've been doing. I mean, I'm up to 700 plus now. Great. So it's been an idea. <laughs> It'll pay you back. It'll come to fruition and pay you. You need to be putting that down. Some interesting stuff, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I'm really curious to know, because one of those people that I interviewed, a very interesting guy named Shelby Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Shelby and I wrote a song together for Ray Charles and Janie Fricky. Great song. It's uh, Who Cares? Yeah, Who Cares? Shelby and I were sitting there at Al Gallico in British General's office, and we were downstairs, and we were writing, Who Cares? Who Cares? You know, for Ricky Skaggs. Well, Billy Sherrill walked down the steps, and he was a big boss man. And he said, uh, hey, I'm getting ready to record. Uh, I need a duet for uh, Janie Pricky and uh, Ray Charles. Why don't you two change that around? Make it pr-. It took Shelby and me about 2.5 seconds to do the changes because we wanted that cut on uh, on uh, Ray Charles and Janie Pricky. And he, uh, we... Uh, we wrote it, and he did it. Shelby's got a gold record hanging behind his <laughs> behind his desk. Shelby was an interesting, hungry young man. He came along about the time country was changing. In the mid-'80s, he came to work for Gallico as a song plugger. Good kid. And his daddy is a legend, you know. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Jerry Kennedy. Oh, my goodness. Tom's always been... Tom T. and I are uh, friends, and we... His daddy produced Tom and, and found Tom, really. I discovered him and gave him that shot at the career, he and Shelby Singleton. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I was here during all that, and Tom had so many great songs. I guess one of my favorite is Homecoming. And so I wrote a song about stealing Tom's songs. <laughs> <laughs> and we were at that. He thought that was the funniest thing. He had me on Pop Goes the Country, and 
and several dates with him because really it was a compliment to Tom's sake. And I'll tell you the words to it. So last night I was picking in a bar room just south of San Antonio. When this rich old buzzard walked up and said that he didn't like none of my song, I said, Mister, if you take a front row seat, buy a drink, and pull off your coat, I'll sing you a whole bunch of great songs that I wrote. And I sang Remember the Year that Clayton Delaney died. I sang Harper Valley PTA, Watermelon Wine. And after I liked beer, he said, come over here. And he pulled out a fat water dough. He said, son, I'll pay cash for every one of them songs you wrote. <laughs> now, friends, y'all know that I didn't write none of them songs. And Tom T. Hall knows I didn't write none of them songs. But that fat old man with that big water money did not know I did not write all them songs. I sold all the Tom T. songs last night. I can't never go back to Nashville, but that's all right. As a sucker born every minute, and when I felt that big fish bite, well, I sold all the Tom T. songs last night. Oh, it was funny. And it was what was really funny is when we took it down there with my manager and a publicist, Bonnie Busey, and played him the record that I recorded on, on Electric Records. I sold all the Tom T. songs last night. And boy, until we got to that part about me stealing them, you should have seen the look on Tom's face. He was sitting there like, well, wait a minute, you didn't write them songs? I did. <laughs> and he was sitting there looking, and I could just hear a posse of lawyers coming after me. <laughs> and then I got to that part about I stole it all, and he slapped the desk and started laughing his butt off. <laughs> they said that was the highest phone bill he ever had in the history of Hall Oak Music. He called all his friends to play it for him over the phone. We didn't have sales back then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and me and his brother were good friends, Hillman Hall. Hillman wrote, pass me by if you're only passing through Johnny Rodriguez and Danny Cricket, you know. That, we just had a lot of fun with it. Ralph Emery had me on the show. Bobby Bear, all of them had me on their shows because they wanted to do that song because that was their buddy. Tom was one of their buddies. So it was fun. We were talking about authors a moment ago, and you touched on this just a little bit, but it's very interesting to me. Tell me a little bit about this Stephen King connection. Okay, it was back before the movie came out. Do you remember Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption? Oh, yeah. Well, okay, Kim Robbins, I think, started the movie and all that. that. Well, before that happened, one day, I read the book, the short story. I read a lot. And if you're a writer, you need to read a lot. Reading and, and, and listening is a... Is part of songwriting. But I, I read this thing. <laughs> it's funny. I was going through a divorce, sitting in a house up in White House, Tennessee, and had boxes all packed and piled up and everything. I was in the house alone. And I thought, I love that story about Rita Hayworth and Charles Shank Redemption. You remember there was a, a poster of uh, Rita Hayworth and Tim Robbins' cell. Right. Well, I thought, now, what if the guy didn't do the crime, went to jail, and said, Jesus is going to get me out of jail, and had a poster of Jesus on the wall. And sure enough, Jesus helped him get out of jail because he dug a hole in the wall behind Jesus' portrait. I wrote this thing called a poster. I took it from Stephen's idea, his his short story, and I called I called a publisher. They said, well, his agent is Kirby McCauley. 
I said, oh, yeah, I've heard that name. So I was reading everything Stephen wrote then. His early book I just loved. I called Kirby McCauley. And I said, and he was the nicest guy. He had, a, had an office on uh, Park Avenue, which tells you his monthly overhead was more than my yearly rent, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I called him, and his daughter answered. She said, you know what? I love that. And she said, would you sing it to me? And I did on the phone. I took my guitar and sung in the telephone, the poster. She said, I'm going to put you through to my daddy, Kirby. And I said, okay. So I called him that same thing. Would you sing me that song? My daughter just told me you wrote a hell of a song about Stevens book, short story, said, I'm his agent. I've been with Stephen for years. Well, I called him, and I sang him the song on the telephone. About that time, 50 people started whistling, yelling, clapping. He was on location filming a movie. He wasn't even in New York. And all these people was the cast that was listening to the song, and I didn't know it. I thought I was just playing it for... Uh, Kirby McCauley. <laughs> he said, I love it. I love it. And he started telling me about how he believed in Stephen because Stephen believed in himself so much. And he said, and that movie hadn't even come out yet. It was still a short story. So we did the, did the song, and Stephen had a had dinner guests over. He used to do his research by inviting doctors and people like that to dinner at that 200-year-old mansion here up in Bangor, Maine. And he'd pick their brains while they had dinner to do his research on his book, you know. He had to be factual. had to know what he was talking about. Smart man. So I called that night, and they said, well, now, Stephen's in a meeting right now. Kirby gave me his number and told me to call him. Said, Stephen already knew about it. Well, I sent him the cassette. And then I'm going to read you a plaque right here in my wall because I sent him a, uh, a note. I said, Stephen, you don't have time to return my calls. I wrote a song, and you're a 50% writer because I took it in your idea. I said, but, doggone it, you, you can't call me back, so I don't have time to read any more of your repetitive books. Oh, <laughs> here it is, a warning from Stephen King. And there's blood dripping down the page here. I'll get it framed. He said, I listened to the song today, and I enjoyed it. In the past, I haven't been too excited about people writing songs based on my work because I didn't think they did a good job. <laughs> but I think you did a wonderful job, Gary, and I wish you all the best with our song. Sorry if you felt like you were getting the brush off. I get so many requests from so many people. The ladies try to field my phone calls and give me much needed writing time. But we'd hate to think we offended anyone, especially you. If I had your phone number, I'd give you a call and tell you in person how much I love the song. Thanks again for sending the tape. Best, Stephen King, down here at the bottom. It's got a P.S. You wouldn't believe the billions of people who call here, even at effing midnight. <laughs> how about that? Johnny Paycheck recorded that song. They wouldn't put it out. What happened is Johnny recorded the song. Stan Cornish told him it was, it was great. And he said, oh, Johnny loves it. He said, man, you, you mean Stephen King, that scary guy? I said, yeah. <laughs> well, 
we recorded it, did a great recording of it. It's in the can. Uh, Stan Cornelius had a heart attack about that time. And Johnny uh, was having health problems, and it never did get released. And I don't know the full reason why, but I do know Stan had a heart attack. And he kind of left Nashville and went to California for a while. Went through a divorce and all that sort of thing. But it's called The Poster by Stephen King and Gary Gentry. <laughs> Isn't that something? How that happened? Oh, yeah. Could you possibly sing a line from The Poster? Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, if you bear with me, I think I can give you the whole whole story. Some of the Hells Angels had already heard it. They were bodyguards and all for John Padchak, and one of them sang me half the song one day where Johnny had been playing it on the bus. He said, that old judge must have had himself a bad hangover Monday. He gave me a life sentence for killing Betty Lou. But Lord knows I didn't do it. It was Bobby Jones who killed her. Bobby hated her because Betty loved me too. So you can take this $50 guard and go get me a Bible. Get a poster of my Jesus. Let me hang it in myself. I didn't do the crime. I ain't going to do the time. You see, Jesus is going to get me out of jail. You wait and see. Jesus is going to get me out of jail. Well, now let me see. Here we go into this second and third verse. He said, but see where I'm saying where the poster came from? Jesus is going to get me out of jail. Said, uh, now at night the boy, but boys make lots of noise in the Tennessee State Prison. And amidst the screams and laughter, I could hear somebody pray. And in the dim light, I could see him kneeling beneath that Jesus poster. And he kept that Bible with him every day. Now, last, one day last fall, at roll call, they yelled, hey, Holy Joe is missing. And behind that Jesus poster, they found a big hole in the wall. And the warden found, and in the Bible box, the warden found a chisel and a letter. It read, goodbye, boys, and Jesus loves you all. And Jesus smiled at us from that poster on the wall. Now, you can take this $50 guard Go get me a Bible, get a poster of my Jesus. Let me hang it in myself. I didn't do the time, and I ain't going to do the time. I didn't do the crime, and I ain't going to do the time. See, Jesus is going to get me out of you. Yes, he is. Yeah, that's the song. Man, thank you for doing that. Yeah, well, I, what the heck, we're all just folks. Uh, it's just entertaining and very, I was just amazed at how nice Stephen and his manager, Kobe uh, McCauley and all of them are. But this song, before the movie came out, then when the movie came out, it kind of took away from the song, see, because everybody knew that uh, the secret that the Rita Hayworth was really a camouflage to hide the uh, hole in the wall. But, but I thought, wow, Jesus is going to get me out of jail. That idea. The unique idea makes a hit, boy, as Billy said. It rattles Stephen King, and I'll get Christmas cards and things from him, you know, and I kind of explained what happened to Johnny, and then Johnny got bad health, you know, and 
violin stand for these that. And then after violin, it, his career kind of empty. Health got him, you know, the uh, emphysema. Yeah, and he did another thing called Cotton Town, and he did uh, 90 Proof Prison, and there's just a lot of things he, they wouldn't let him put out when country music started changing. And, uh, but yeah, he, he, he put me on the map. The way I pitched him that song and the way it all came about, I was, I was a desperate songwriter. I came here to make it or die. I didn't care one way or the other. You got to want it that bad. I was down living in the car on Broadway and up in Printer's Alley, up there in the night, Johnny Paycheck. Well, he didn't have the hits. To take this job and shove it, and the only hell my mama ever raised, Mike Dicker, an old buddy of mine, wrote that. He didn't have those hits yet. He was still doing A11, Jukebox Charlie, some of those early songs. And I went up to Prenner's uh, Alley and sat on the front row. There wasn't but about 20 people in the room that night. Tickets were like $15. I think I spent my last $15 buying a ticket to go see And I said, Johnny, I just got out of Navy. He was on bike. I walked up to him, shook his hand. I said, uh, I wrote a song coming across Pennsylvania. I got discharged in Pennsylvania. And I said, uh, man, it's you. I said, I just close my eyes and become you. Write a song for you. And it's it. Well, what is it? I said, well, it's drinking and driving. And he said, well, kind of sounds like me. Won't you put it down on tape and uh, get it to me? I'm, I'm recording here in a couple of weeks. Well, I said, Johnny, I don't have a tape player. I don't have a studio or any money to go there. I ain't even got a, a guitar right now. I'm broke, man. I'm living in the car. He said, well, I'm getting ready to take a break and go to John. You want to sing it to me and use my guitar? I said, yeah, that'd be fine. I went back there and I propped my foot up on one urinal, and he propped his up on the other while he was taking a leak, and I played him drinking and driving. Now, he went to Billy Shiloh's guys. I hadn't even met him yet. I hadn't even got the job at the liquor store. And he went to meet those guys and told them about me coming in there, me in the restroom, and singing them a song on his guitar, and he loved the song. He told Carmel Taylor. Carmel is the one that came to me at the liquor store and said, can I publish it? He already knew that song was sold. And and Johnny told him, now I pitched him that song. Billy Shiloh said, damn. Sound like a serious song out of me. You better bring him down here. He said, yeah, he didn't have nothing, but he had the song. And then I got that call from Billy Sherrill later, Johnny Paycheck singing, five dollars worth of regular. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I can't believe some of the stuff I've done in this town, you know, <laughs> looking back. But with a few drinks and a, a pill or two and a couple of joints, I'd get very bold. <laughs> It worked. It, so who can argue, you know, and say that it, it was wrong? That's the way I did it. I didn't, I was just, ignorance is bliss, I say. I believe, I was ignorant, and I wanted songs recorded. They were talking about technology the other day. I said, well, you know, I hate technology. Why? I said, well, see, I used to live in a car. And back before they had these technical little slide-in keys for motel rooms, People usually check out in the morning. They'd leave their key hanging in the door, or they'd leave the door open. Well, I could drive that car over to the uh, Shoney's Motel, and I could run in, get me a shower, and be gone before the maid came to do a cleanup. I said, "You can't do that today. You got electronic keys, you know." 
And they laughed and said, did you really do I said, man, you do what you got to do to survive. <laughs> and I did that, yeah. I'd go in there. I was that extra cow or two. I could run in a motel, get a shower, clean up and shave, and get back out to my car before the maid came by to clean the room. <laughs> That's great. Desperate men do desperate things, said Shakespeare. Very, very true. Yeah. I'm sure you could look back in your career some of the things you've done and you think, wow, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) (laughs) You actually are absolutely correct. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Hey, how about, you know, Tim McGraw had a song that I love called, How Bad Do You Want It? And it's true. Are you living, breathing, eating, sleeping? You know, how bad do you want it? Success. I tell all these kids, you know, y'all listen to that song. That's it. How bad do you want? Are you willing to sacrifice everything to make it? Tom and I were talking about that one time. Tom T. Said a boy came to town, and Tom was just writing. Then he he wasn't a wasn't a star, and and boy said, "Well, I'm not going to come to this publishing company. I'm going to the other publishing company. They'll pay me a hundred dollars more a month in a draw." And Tom said, "Look, man, don't worry about money." Worry about success. You seek success, and with it, money just comes. Success. And I thought, boy, that's wise, Tom. He always had something like that. So it's profound, and it's true. You were mentioning that probably the best interpretation of one of your songs was The Ride by David Allen Coe. Yeah. I'm curious to know, what is David Allen Coe like when you're face-to-face with him? He's uh, always preoccupied. He's busy. He's always busy. And he's always, it's kind of, a, 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 his expressions kind of struggle because he always wants to stay ahead, you know, of the game. He wanted it as bad as any anybody. And he's a great writer. I did another song one, one day. He came in. Billy was getting ready to record him. What's he like? He's, uh, I don't think anybody gets to know David Allen Coe, you know? He's that, he's that busy, preoccupied, and always is, he can look right at you and his mind's on something else. Either he's writing a song or he's got a date coming up or something, you know? It's hard to get his attention, but he came through one morning. Billy was getting ready to record him, and I said, David, I, I got a song going to you here. All right. Well, he'd already had the ride, see, so that was, man, that was smoking hot. And uh, I got, I went to New York to get a pop award for that. Lo and behold, Barry Gibb, Rod Stewart, and several pop art. I got a pop award for that, and I was in that audition, and I felt, man, I feel like an eight-track tape in a Best Buy store. And I was sitting there, and when they play your song, you go up and get your award. I went up to get it. Rod Stewart and Barry Gibb stood to applaud. Humble me, man. Touch my old heart, you know? Mm. And, I mean, these are guys I just idolize, you know? I thought, wow, they're clapping for me? It was a song. It was David's interpretation of the ride at the Plaza Hotel in New York. David came through that morning. I said, David, I got a song about smoking a joint. I want you to hear. All right. So it's called Bluegrass Morning, and it's in the Just Divorced album that he did. And there's me and Danny Doris. Danny was an actor now. He's been in a lot of movies. Danny and I wrote uh, Lady in the Blue Mercedes. 
Danny and I wrote this and with Mark Sherrill and somebody else. He said, man, it'd have to be me or Hank Jr. or an outlaw to do it, wouldn't it? I said, yeah. So uh, he said, I'll do it. He walked in there and bit it. Boo Billy's man. He said, man, you know, you sold him that song. Listen to this. And he played it. And I thought, God, that's great. Funky. Up to him. Believable. Uh, yeah. That, that's good. So he'd do that. But as far as sitting down and being personal, I, he's got such a history. I don't think he could put it all. He'd have to write a, a book as big as War and Peace, put his story in. He just, uh, I, I, I never did get, he was not easy to get close to. And I think prison might have had something to do with that, you know, in his life and his history. But you ask me what, what he was like up close. And he's about business. You had a song for him. You had something like he'd give your, your attention, then he was gone. You know? Hmm. Busy. Very busy. Busy, you said. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the best thing about being Gary Gentry? Well, I think it's my honesty. Sometimes it costs me. My brutal honesty and my uh, my direct, blunt approach to things. And, and uh, it, it's worked for me. I love people. I care about people. I grew up a preacher's kid, East Tennessee. I've been to more funerals, weddings, and God, you wouldn't believe people I didn't even know. But I've got to know a lot of people and a lot of different walks of life in my life. And I think it's my, even even with some of the dark sides, my compassion for people. And try to help these kids get off the ground. They don't want to be songwriters. And they just think, oh, Gary, man, he'll know. <laughs> they call me and I try to help them. But I also tell them, you're going to have to write. Billy Sherrill said, you want to write commercial, you write what's happening today. You want to write a hit? Then turn on the radio, listen to the top ten, and beat every one of them songs, and you got yourself a hit. And I said, kids, you can't hang on to the old songs and the old way we used to do things and make it today unless you're going to do bluegrass or something where they're not so restricted. I said, the subject matter is everything today, and you have to stay away from offending people that we didn't have to during the day, so. <laughs> and I try and try and help them along. They uh, a lot of them want to cling to the old country music they grew up on and all that. And I tell them, "Well, that's fine. You can write it all day. And who knows? You might get lucky. But chances are you won't. Because when Max Barnes tells you that kind of music's over, and Max, I just love dearly. I said, it, "He's right. He's right. So right for today. Your competition is the radio. Listen to those songs and beat them, and you got a hit." said Billy Sherrill. So I don't like it. I've got to go write my book called The Songwriters. It's it's fictional, novel, stories of some of the craziest people I've ever met in my life, songwriters. And I've got some stories. And it'll be good. And I'll call all my Georgia friends down there whenever I get through that book. <laughs> buy one. <laughs> Ask them to buy one. It's uh, my compassion for people, I guess, is the best thing about Gary Gentry. All the guys that I wrote for, I loved, and uh, gals, and they knew it, so it's real, you know. Well, Gary Gentry, I can tell you this. You've written some songs that are here to stay. Well, thank you. Thanks to a lot of these younger people and kids. I noticed the other day, Tracy Lawrence and Brad 
Paisley doing the Corvette song. Well, that means a lot to me because they were kids when George had to hit with it, you know. By the way, that thing on George, you know that low part he does, oh, she was hotter than a two-dollar pistol. Oh, yeah. I did not do that low part. That was George's <laughs> creation. I wrote, now, she was hotter than a two-dollar pistol. And George, I walked into Billy's office to take Billy a bottle of wine. Every time he cut one of my songs, I'd take him a bottle of wine. Walk in, and there was George. And I looked at George and pointed my finger at him. See, I knew him from the liquor store. I pointed my finger at him. And I said, oh, she was a hotter than a two-dollar pistol. He said, no. He stood up. And he said, oh, she was a hotter than a two-dollar pistol. I said, golly. He'd take any song he did and make it his. You'd think he wrote it, you know? And I said, Billy, here's a bottle of wine. I said, God, that blew me away. He said, yeah, George will show you how it's done, son. Now get out of here and go write something else. <laughs> George is, I just loved him. But yeah, these kids come along and Tracy and them and Jamie Johnson and all of them do the Corvette song. Just thrills me. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping old guys' old songs alive, you know? <laughs> well, Gary Gentry, thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, Paul, I enjoyed it. And uh, where are you? Uh, right in the Atlanta area? Just north of Atlanta. Okay, I have son lives in coming. Oh, and that's not far. No. I'd go down there to graduation. Got another granddaughter going to graduate next year. Be right back down there in the spring. But, oh, yeah. I keep up with the bulldogs down there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening and your time. And I've enjoyed it, Paul. Me too. And anytime you want to holler, well, well give me a holler and uh, I'll see you on Facebook. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Thanks for calling, and I enjoyed it. God bless all y'all out there. God bless you, sir. Bye-bye. Till next time. You too. Bye-bye. Bop-bop-deely, bop-bop-ba-doo, bop-zee-bock-a-doodly, not bop-zee-bock-a-doodly, Goodbye.